Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you'll never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again today with episode 514 of the Survival Podcast. It is September 21st, 2010. It is a Tuesday. In spite of the fact that it is a Tuesday, we're going to do a show much like a Monday show today for a couple reasons. One, and a Monday show, of course, for new listeners, is where you send me emails and I comment on the articles you send me or answer your questions. And the reason we're doing that today, even though it's kind of been a Monday tradition, is that, as I've been mentioning recently, I'm getting so many emails at this point that sometimes I just look at the backlog and I just feel guilty. I feel like if people are listening to this show and sending me questions, I need to do the best I can to answer those questions or comment on those stories and things like that. And every once in a while, I'm going to double up. There's a second reason today, though, too. This is a big announcement for tomorrow for those guys that fast-forward through the beginning when you hear the housekeeping stuff and all. Tomorrow, uh, you're going to hear a show with me interviewing Chris Martinson. Chris Martinson is one of, to me, the most enlightened futurists of our time. A guy who's really looked at trends and where we're going. And not from a standpoint of, what can I sell you? But from a standpoint of, hey, I'm just taking all of the information that I have. And I'm, I'm going to be very methodical like a research scientist because that's his background. And I'm going to see where we're going. And he has a, a, something called The Crash Course. Uh, there's a condensed version that's 45 minutes long. You can watch on his website for free. You might want to watch that before tomorrow's interview. Uh, but he'll be on tomorrow. Now, what does that have to do with me doing a Q&A show today? I can do Q&A shows faster and quicker. And I'm going to be interviewing him at 10 a.m. this morning. So to make sure there's a show today... And that I can get him interviewed and get his show out for tomorrow, I needed to do a quicker show. So there's two reasons for this. But the bigger one is guilt. I do feel guilty that I don't answer enough of the email that comes in anymore because of its pure volume. And I feel that every single listener out there deserves an answer if it can happen. Uh, so I'm going to work harder to do that. Occasionally maybe we'll do shows like this on a double up every other week or something like that. I know not everybody's in love with these shows, but hey, I do a variety to try to serve everybody and do the best I can, and I do believe it's important to take care of you guys. If you're asking, I'm going to try to answer. Um, first, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the Survival Podcast is here every day, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one, Backyard Food Production. That's Marjorie down there south of Austin, somewhere in that nebulous great big region of Texas uh, with her little farm uh, of several acres. I think she's got like 40 acres or something like that. Actually, I think she has more than that. But I think they're working with 40 acres of what they have there. But she put together this DVD of what they're doing and adapted it so that you could use it whether you had 40 acres or whether you had four acres, or whether you had four-tenths of an acre in a backyard in suburbia. And it is probably the most practical, down-to-earth, here's-what-you-do DVD on permaculture and, and home-level home food production that I've ever seen. 
Uh, I just watched it again about a week ago, and I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, I need to do that. Uh, it's really amazing how much information they've condensed into one DVD. So uh, definitely, if you haven't bought their DVD yet, consider uh, checking that out and purchasing a copy. At $25, bucks, I think it's an extreme value. Next up today is silverandgoldshop.com. In the words of our audience, the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont, who goes out of her way to make sure that every customer is treated like her only customer. I've heard so many people just dote on Mary Beth about how great she is with her customer service and how she always goes the extra mile to make sure that anything that's that's changed is taken care of. And what I mean by like that is I get emails from people like, you know, I bought some stuff from her and uh, silver went down that day. The price of silver dropped for whatever reason. And she adjusted my order down and charged me less because I ordered in the morning but she didn't ship till the evening. I've never even heard of that anywhere else. And You know, folks, she has some beautiful silver rounds with some really interesting designs and patterns. And if nothing else, you know, add a little bit of silver to your own personal portfolio. But when you're giving, you know, Christmas presents, Christmas is coming up faster than we realize and things like that. Uh, you know, back to school presents, whatever, when you have to give it to the kids in your family. Your kids, your, but especially your nieces and your nephews that might be held one off from your philosophy of life. Give them some silver coins. You know, I remember when I was a kid. You know, my great-grandfather, every time I went to see my great-grandfather, the limited time I was able to do that, and I can remember, he always had a silver dollar for me. I still have them. I don't have one freaking plastic toy from my childhood, but I still have some silver dollars that my great-grandfather gave me. Think about that when you're planning what to give those nieces and nephews and godchildren and, and, and you know, things like that. All right. Uh, next up, remember, check out the Survival Podcast Gear Shop and consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you support the show at 20 cents an episode. With that, let's go ahead and start taking your questions. Uh, the first one comes today from Shane. Shane says, uh, you know, um, I don't really have a question, but I have a couple articles for you. And it's about uh, herbicides passing through cow manure into organic compost. Uh, a huge organic farm up the road from us had many of their crops destroyed. This is probably this probably would not be possible if it were not for GMO Roundup ready uh, crops. Here's a link to the articles, and you know, basically, I, I'll put the links to the articles. I don't really need to read the articles to to, to you to tell you what's going on. Um, here's what's happening: there are people that are trying to do organic gardening and they're purchasing compost, and specifically composted cow manure and, and, and composted hay and uh, other things. And they put this great, wonderful compost into their gardens or into their farms. And then they start planting their crops and their crops either don't grow or they grow and they have all kinds of problems. They grow lethargically. It takes years for them to, uh, to get to a point where they start to, to, to grow well. Especially when they're growing things that are highly sensitive to herbicides like legumes. So they have very poor results with their beans, uh, or peas or anything like that. And I wonder what's going on. And what's happening is the cattle are being fed, um, different organic matter, different plant matter that has been treated with Roundup. And Roundup, which we're told by Monsanto, just, you know, goes away eventually. It just dissipates in the biosphere and it, it stops doing any harm. And, and other herbicides are now passing all the way through the cow, surviving the composting process. 
and staying persistent when the compost is added to the garden. And it just drives home the point that I keep saying with this GMO stuff, unintended consequences. We're at a point now where humanity is acting without thinking. Just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should. This dovetails nicely, and it's a part of why I put it on today's show. With yesterday, I talked about the GMO sugar beets. The judge came out and said, no more GMO sugar beets. We have to put a stop to this until we can do a real study to see if the organic producer is going to be harmed by the, you know, the GMO sugar beet cross-pollinating with the, you know, the organic sugar beet that's not GMO and spreading the gene through the biosphere. And nobody studied that. And, and this could harm other producers and we have to stop this. And what did the producers say? The producers said, the ones that are using GMOs, we can't go back. We don't have the tools anymore. We, we're not prepared. There's not enough seed available. We're stuck with this now. Even if we shouldn't do it, we're st- you got to let us do this. And the judge said, no. And how long were they growing the new sugar beets, the GMO sugar beets? Two years. Two years and we can't go back. Two years and there's not enough seed. Now we see compost that's killing crops. And, of course, the one thing that compost wouldn't kill would be a Roundup-ready variant. Or what other herb- other herbicide might be in there, ready variant. And the, the the guy that sent this in, again, what was his name, um, Shane, is right. If we were not, at this point in our lives, spraying herbicides on food, this wouldn't be possible. There'd be no way we'd be feeding anything to cattle that had been treated with an herbicide if we hadn't produced food that was herbicide-ready. Because if we sprayed anything else with the herbicide, what would happen? It would die. Another unintended consequence of genetically modified food. Not going to read any articles to you, but I want to pull another one that I've got so many emails on and just talk about it to you for a second with the GMOs before we move on to the next question. The federal government has decided it is now safe for you to eat genetically modified salmon. It's been talked about. Now it's supposedly passed, and it will be on store shelves within two years. So now they're genetically modifying salmon. Take one salmon and take genes from other creatures, including other salmon and things that are not even salmon, and put that gene into the salmon and make the salmon grow much faster, and then you eat the salmon. And we have no guarantee, the way these fish farms are run, that none of these salmon will escape or get out. It's not like they're tanks. A lot of them are in coastal farms where they're like, you know, kept out and exposed to the open, open waters. And we have no no ability to control whether or not some of these genetically modified little salmon fry get out. And if they get out and they start crossbreeding in the wild, they pass that genetic trait on just like everything else. And then we have a genetically modified salmon, not just on our store shelves, which is bad enough, but swimming around in our oceans. And at the same time, scientists are creating a genetically modified mosquito, one that will not transmit malaria. And we're going to let that go with the express purpose of making it take over other mosquitoes. And we don't know what its long-term effects will be. The scientists assure us it'll be fine, it'll be safe. And I, you almost sit and you go, does nobody read in our government read science fiction? And has no one studied the way that science fiction generally becomes science fact? How in the 50s, in the 60s, in the first editions of Star Trek, things like, you know, Basically, flip phones were their communicators. 
and laptop computers, and this looks so futuristic, and we can't possibly ever get to a place like this. This is 500 years in the future here. And, you know, by the 1980s, people are running around these bricks, but by the 90s, basically, they had flip phones. And we've actually progressed past those things now. It's unbelievable how well science fiction writers have been able to look into our future and warn us or prepare us for things. And I'm not saying we should take, make science fiction our, you know, our, our Bible or anything like that. But whenever you read anything about screwing around at the genetic level, um, it never works out well. And here we've done it with corn, with soybeans, with sugar beets, with salmon, with mosquitoes, with soy, with cotton. They've done it with wheat, they just haven't released it as far as we know yet onto our tables. They've done it with rice, and that has been released into, into the biosphere. Rice farmers have sued successfully because their crops were contaminated. They've done it with canola. How long will it be before everything that we rely on has been manipulated at the genetic level, and if we find out that something's wrong, we can't go back? This is why it's so important for you to have that backyard garden. This is why you need to save your own seed. This is why you need to preserve seed stocks. This is why you need to have personal seed banks. When you grow something and it produces an abundance of seeds, you know, harvest all the seed, harvest it all, put it in Ziploc bags, keep it in a cool, dark place and labeled, and if you get a chance to pass that seed on to another person through a seed exchange or something like that, do it. I don't care if you give it away. Spread it. Get it growing in as many places as possible and keep a reserve for yourself. And every year, get new seed stock. And once your seed's two to three years old, I hope you've replaced it and you can start to, to either, you know, just sow it wherever you can or accept the fact that it's old and unless you had it perfectly stored, it's probably not going to be very viable anymore. And keep generating new seed stock. Put some away. Put some away, you know, properly prepared. Consider investing in seeds that have been, you know, designed for long-term storage. But don't even, don't just rely on, on, you know, commercially prepared seed banks. Build your own. Anything you can do to create cool, dark, and dry will make seeds store for much longer. Uh, when I first started doing the show and I started researching how long can seeds remain viable, there were palm seeds found in ruins in the Middle East where it was very dry and cool in these, these, uh, like these, you know, uh, these old structures that people lived in that were abandoned, these old ruins. They were 2,000 years old, and scientists planted them, and some of them grew. Store seeds, store genetic diversity. Another reason would be taking care of livestock of your own and preserving these, these, um, these heirloom varieties, you know, these original non-altered varieties of vegetables and plants and fruits, because we don't know what these idiots are going to do. It's really important that we all play a part in this. Um, Let's move to the next one. Uh, this is from Scott. Scott says, I have a question for you. How do you restore foods like, restore foods like Yoder's bacon and, or a number 10 can of Mountain House after you initially open it? I just recently upgraded to the MSB when I'm going to take advantage of the discount club at Safe Castle. I wanted to try bacon but couldn't see eating it all at once and wanted to save what was left. What would be the best thing to do? As always, thanks. Um, two different products there. Yoder's bacon. You read it, and it says it has 60 some, 66 slices per can or something like that. I don't remember what it is, but it's a lot. And you think maybe this is like a huge can. A Yoder's bacon can is about the size of a Campbell's soup can. And you wonder how they get 66 strips of bacon in there. I'm going to do a video uh, later this week on how you open up 
and use Yoder's Bacon. It's not hard, but I think the first time somebody opens one, you might be like, what the hell? It's wrapped up really tight in wax paper, and it's kind of nasty because of the grease that's all over it. But Yoder's Bacon, you're not going to restore for long-term storage. It's just not going to happen. Uh, but 66 pieces of bacon, you know, <laughs> I know some people would say that's going to last a, a really long time, but if you're actually using it with a family, uh, you can go through it pretty quick. And there's small pieces of bacon. The, this is not like, you know, jumbo thick bacon. This is more like bacon if you go to the store and you buy the pre-cooked bacon. That's basically what it looks like because it is pre-cooked. What I do with Yoder's bacon is I open the can and I unroll this greasy wax paper stuff and I open it up and I take and I peel out all my pieces of bacon and I set them on a paper plate uh, with a piece of paper towel and I make a bunch of layers of that and I actually, once it's all laid out, I microwave it for about 32 seconds, 30 seconds to a minute. Uh, which isn't very long with that much bacon, but I usually start with 30 seconds to see if I get what I want and do another 30 seconds, not a straight minute. The reason I do that is there's a lot of grease that's kind of congealed on that bacon, and when it's sitting on a paper towel above and below it, it the, the, the grease liquefies and it pulls the grease off of the bacon into the paper towel, and I throw the paper towels away, I let that bacon cool, and just lay it all out on like a little cutting board or whatever, then I put it in a Ziploc bag, and we use it as we as we you know as we need it, uh, as we need bacon for like in a bacon burger or something like that, or crumbling some up on uh, a salad or what have you. And we're big on bacon use, so you know I might have four or five pieces with a couple eggs for breakfast or something like that, and it's gonna last like that in a Ziploc bag in the refrigerator for for weeks. So. I don't know if it would last months. I don't think I would trust it that long. But definitely three, four weeks uh, if it lasts that long. I mean, when bacon's sitting around pre-cooked and ready to go, it's better than beef jerky. Uh, so you're not going to restore it for long-term storage, but kept uh, you know, in a cool, dry place like a refrigerator, it's going to last quite a while. In a shit at the fan scenario, if there was no electricity, you'd probably still be able to get a week out of keeping it in a cool, dry storage area, okay? Uh, in a Ziploc bag, and you know, then don't open any more until that's used up. Number 10 cans I've gotten a lot of questions about, because specifically, uh, a lot of these freeze-dried meats say, once it's open, use the whole thing within a couple weeks. And uh, people say, there's no way I'm going to use all of what's in a number 10 can, unless we're indeed living on it, and, and we're using it. If we're just basically saying, hey, look, we've had this stuff around for a long time, I want to pull off a can of pork chops and start using these things and get rid of them. Real simple, the best thing that you could do is get yourself some of the food-grade paint cans that I talk about from the Carry Company is where I get them. They're phonetically gold-lined and sealed. Take out what you need, take what you're not going to use, put them into the Carry can, throw a couple O2 absorbers in there, seal them up, stick that in the refrigerator, and they're going to store just fine for you. The other thing you could do is vacuum seal them in some vacuum seal bags, but I would refrigerate them after opening. You probably, you definitely don't have to. But it's going to keep them in front of you, and you're going to be more likely to use them. And I would try to, once you've opened a can, a number 10 can, I would try to continuously use it until it's gone. And that's what we do when we open something like that. We if we open, decide, hey, you know what, let's uh, let's let's get some new pork chops in, and let's use one of these cans because it's been around for five years, and let's get a little bit of rotation through our long-term storage. That's what we do. We'll keep, you know, maybe we're having pork chops uh, once a week for the next, you know, four or five weeks. Maybe we're having some people over and, hey, feeding them some long-term storage food and then saying, hey, did you like those sports? Yeah, those were great. Oh, you guess what? 
They were seven years old when you ate them. Good way to, to share uh, to share the uh, the, the uh, prepper lifestyle. So there you go. Um, but anything you know, you'll never go back. And see, you got to understand, any food company's going to cover its ass. So if I'm advertising my food can be stored for 20 years, and you open it, I want to make damn sure that you don't think you can store it for another, still store it for 20 years. That you've effectively um, ruined your warranty, so to speak, right? You know, they put it like on a laptop computer. Basically, says if you open this, the manufacturer doesn't cover the warranty anymore. Doesn't mean it won't work. It just means that hey, we're not vouching for it anymore because we have no control over what you do with it after you open it. But a freeze-dried piece of meat is a long-term storage item, and if you put it back into a similar environment, you're going to get a similar storage factor out of it. If that makes sense. So that's the best I can do for you, that one. Uh, Richard sends me an email. It says, hey, recently I read that a good way to store potatoes in peat moss, it's good, it's good, a good way to store potatoes is in peat moss because it inhibits microbes from growing. Mer- Mel Bartholomew of Square Foot Gardening says to use one-third peat moss. Wouldn't this inhibit the beneficial microorganisms we want to encourage? Uh, Richard, um, no. It will not inhibit anything in your garden. Peat moss in your garden, its effect is largely neutral initially. Over time, uh, freed from the very sterile environment, the very uh, oxygen-deprived environment of a peat bog, it will eventually begin to break down and compost to become part of your soil like anything else. But it takes a long time for it to break down. Little pieces of that peat moss stays there for a while, and it's very neutral in its effect in your garden. It basically acts as a sponge. Its primary uh, addition to the garden is, is two things. One, because it's light and fluffy, it will tend to create heavy soils. It will loosen them and make them looser as it's incorporated and becomes part of the soil. And two, it acts like a sponge so it retains moisture better than plain old dirt. Right? So that's why we add it. When people use it for storing potatoes, it's used completely dry and by itself. And it does have some microbe inhibiting effect that way, but not so much because it, it releases anything or has any kind of chemical in it that uh, acts like an antibiotic or anything. It's because it's largely sterile. It's not sterile. I didn't say it is sterile. It's largely sterile. It doesn't have a whole lot going on. And as it's dry, it has even less going on. So if we take potatoes, and we put a layer of peat moss in the bottom of a box, and then we put potatoes on top of them, and then we add a little bit more peat moss, and we keep doing that until we have all our potatoes buried in dry peat moss, and we keep that in a cool, dry area, there's a lot of things going on there. One, since we're not exposing it to moisture, if there is any excessive moisture, it will take it up and it wicks it away from the potatoes, so it keeps the potatoes dry. Right. The other thing is it keeps, it, it keeps them in the dark. So there's nothing that encourages them to sprout then, and it will extend storage life of potatoes. But it's not acting like an antibiotic or something like that. It's simply an inert, dry, dark area that helps keep our potatoes dry, at least the surfaces of them dry. It won't pull moisture out of the potatoes, so it won't dehydrate our potatoes for us, but it will keep the surface of the potatoes from becoming moist because of excessive humidity that we lose control of or something like that. So it's not a lot different than storing them in sand. Dry sand would do a very similar thing. Um, and it's not, again, the sand's not antibiotic. It's just largely sterile. It doesn't have a lot going on. It's not a lot of organic matter, not a lot of microbes there to begin with. Um, so, And if you really wanted to... Uh, 
to uh, make sure that your, your your peat moss was sterile. You could actually, you know, heat it up. You could bake it. Uh, but that's really not necessary. You could bake it, I think, 180 degrees if you did that for about 15 minutes. Any kind of thing in there that would be uh, a kind of a bug of or whatever it would kill. But it's just not necessary. Uh, not for storing potatoes anyway. So that, there's the skinny on that. So keep following Mel's advice. Keep putting it in that garden. Use it as a soil amendment. But don't think that it's going to in any way inhibit microbacterial uh, activity in your soil. The, again, the main reason that it's a great choice is because its effect is largely neutral. Uh, it doesn't really make it go faster. It doesn't make it go slower. It just is. It's also kind of pH buffering. It, it, it sends that soil into that, that neutral level of about a 7 where it's not quite acidic and it's not quite ba alkali or basic, however you want to call it, and it helps buffer soil uh, because it's so neutral. So if you have soil that's a little bit acidic or a little bit of alkali, it'll pull it toward the center from either direction because it's a neutral substance. So that's what makes peat moss such a great garden amendment. And conversely, its effects of being largely sterile, largely neutral, and dry make it a great storage medium for root crops like potatoes. Um, I also have another question here now from Steve. And Steve says, I'm sure a lot of listeners have iPhones or the new Droid phones that allow you to take pictures and transfer or scan uh, from your computer. Is it a good idea to scan your driver's license, insurance card, AAA card, etc., and take pictures of your license plate of your vehicles and store them on your phone as a backup? Or is it bad for your personal operational security? Um, let's see. I don't have a big problem with your AAA card. And I don't have a big problem with the license plate on your vehicle. And I know some people like always want to black out license plates and pictures and stuff like that. Look, you, when you drive your vehicle down the road, you drive past 50,000 people a day who see your license plate. Your license plate is not privileged information. Anybody anywhere can look at your vehicle and go, there's a license plate. Most states require frontal license plates, so front or back. There's, hey, he's got a plate there and a plate there. There's Anybody can write that down. I don't consider a license plate. I always find it funny when people go through the trouble to dark out their license plate in a video. I just think it's dumb. I really, and I know some of you, some of you do it and you're going to get angry with me, but really think about the fact that, you know, it's sitting in your parking lot, your driveway right now, or a parking lot at work right now while you're listening, or you're, you're listening to me on your iPod driving down the road and they're behind you right now. There's a person back there and you have no idea who they are. And if they want your plate number, they have it, you know, um, and there's, you know, millions of cameras out there now. Uh, on traffic cameras and things like that, taking pictures of your vehicle all the time. So those two could be helpful, and I'm not really worried about operational security from either one of those. Again, a AAA card or a, a license plate uh, number. Your driver's license worries me. It's a critical piece of information, and certain things can be done if people know your driver's license number. Uh, it's a way that online you know, identity can be verified. Your insurance card bugs me because, generally speaking, a lot of insurance cards today, insurance companies use your Social Security number, and some of them are stupid enough to print your Social Security number on your insurance card. That bugs me as well. That, that really does. If I was going to put a picture of my insurance card on my phone, if it had a Social Security number, I would do an altered picture where... My social security number is blocked out because I should be able to remember that if I'm at all conscious. And if anybody is contacted, like my wife is an emergency contact, 
which I could also list, would be able to provide that information. They don't need that to verify your insurance with your insurance company. It's more that your insurance company uses it. It's up to you in the end, right? I mean, your the problem I have with being on a phone is people lose phones all the time. And if I have all that information on my phone and somebody finds my iPhone and they're you know, a less than honest person and they hit the button and they just start saying, hey, I wonder what this guy's got going on here. And they go into my picture roll, you know, right where it says photos, and they start flipping through and they go, oh, he cooks food, he sets up deer feeders. Oh, there's his driver's license. There's his insurance card. There's his social security number. Woo-hoo, right? Now I can steal this guy's identity. But that information has to be somewhere. So that's a personal choice. Personally, I wouldn't do it. Personally, I would be more likely to keep my information on one of those little credit card size um, USB drives um, in my wallet. Because I'm a lot less likely to lose my wallet than my phone. My wallet stays in my pocket. Right, My phone is out all the time. I'm using it. I'm talking to people. I left my phone recently at uh, a restaurant. And it, you know, I was sitting here, and I've got this black, dark, black, glossy case uh, with an extra battery for my iPhone in it. It's a pretty cool little thing. Um, and I had it sitting on a black granite uh, bar. And it just blended in, and I walked out, and I ended up home and having to call my phone, and the waitress picked it up, and I went back and got my phone. That's a perfect example of how this happens. One little tech tip I'll give you, though, for iPhone users. There's a product called the Zom, Z-O-M-M, and uh, it's a wireless leash for the iPhone. I just found it recently at a conference I went to. And the way it works, it goes on your keychain, and it works like a speakerphone. So somebody calls you, you just grab your keys from the ignition, don't t- take them out, just grab them while they're hanging, or hit a button, and you start talking. And that's cool. But the, what's really cool is it links by Bluetooth to your phone. And I think it'll work with Blackberries and things like that, too. I think it'll work with anything Bluetooth. But it was really made for the iPhone. And if you get too far away from it, right, um, the little thing on your keychain starts screaming. So if you're at a restaurant or a, anywhere, or you're at home and you want to take your phone with you, as long as you have it tethered, You walk out the door, obviously you're not leaving without your keys because your car won't start without your keys, right? So you get 30 feet or whatever it is away from the phone, and all of a sudden your key ring starts going beep, 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 beep. Well, you know you left your phone, so you go back and get it. Here's the really cool part, though, if you're like me, and put your keys places and you can't find them. All I do if I can't find my keys now is I pick up my phone and I turn off Bluetooth which creates the same effect. Now the keychain screams, and I go find the keys, and I retether it. I haven't lost or left my phone anywhere since I got this thing, and I found that I feel a lot safer driving down the road using that speakerphone function than even picking up the iPhone, look, turning it on, putting the speakerphone on, and setting it down in my lap. Um, and it, you know, it does double duty. So I don't know if that's really a survival topic, but hey, your phone could be critical information. It dovetailed nicely into the question. But personally, I would not put personal pictures on my phone is the short answer to that one. Moving on to the next one. Um, this comes from Fred. Fred says, so my wife and I have decided to, it would be better to raise our forthcoming, forthcoming child. We'll be here next week probably. That means based on when this question came in, you've probably already had a baby. Congratulations, Fred and wife. Um, without their mother and father swamped in debt and took the first step this Sunday by shredding our credit cards. Congratulations, Fred. Thank you for standing up and doing that. That's a big step for a lot of people. Now a question for you. Should we call each credit card company and close the account 
or wait to do that until we finish paying them. Love the show and your honesty and positivity, Fred. You probably can't close the account. It's probably not possible because you owe the money. So the account will stay open. What you can do, and it would protect you from somebody getting those numbers and charging money on them, is call the credit card companies and tell them that you no longer wish to be able to charge anything on them and you want the, the, the accounts to remain open for payment purposes, but you want the cards deactivated. You don't want any charges allowed on the cards. And that's just a security issue. It's not really going to change anything one way or the other with your credit report, and it's not going to keep you from using the cards because all it would take for you to turn them back on is a call back to the credit card company, and they would be overjoyed to do it. Be prepared for a million reasons why they can't do it, why they shouldn't do it, and for them to make offers to reduce your interest rates and do special things and raise your credit limit and give you a no-fee card and, and, and make Puff the Magic Dragon appear over your house and lay golden freaking eggs on your roof, right? and create an entire new world just for you, and they'll sing you a song and send you a freaking lullaby at night and do anything, but, oh, please, God, don't do this, they're going to resist it. Revel in it. Love it. Embrace the experience. Laugh. And say, either do it or put me up the chain to someone who has the authority to do it. I don't need you anymore. I don't need your crack anymore. And tell them it's crack. Tell them, I'm cutting myself off from the crack and the methamphetamine and the cocaine and all the rest of the dope that you guys deal. I don't need it anymore. And listen to them squirm. It's great. It's a wonderful experience. And I would call up each of the companies and I would tell them now that I don't, you don't want any additional charges allowed on the cards, that you've physically destroyed the cards, that you are not in any way telling them you're not going to pay them because, of course, you're going to be good and make restitution on your debt but you do not want the risk that somebody else might use those cards. And there's no point in them remaining available for use at this point. And if you should need them used, you'll call them back and let them know. It's a wonderful way to protect yourself at this juncture. It will also make it less likely that with that new baby, and I need diapers this week, and maybe we could just do a 100 bucks this week. just Because now you'll have to pick the phone up and call and admit failure. You'll dig deeper, you'll do what needs to be done, and you'll get it done right. And if you ever need another credit card, somebody will give you one. You're going to have great credit because you're going to pay these fools off. Now, the other question is, once you've paid them off, do you close the account? Um, some people would say no, because as long as the, the account is there, it's good for my credit and I might want a mortgage someday. Uh, I think you should be saving 10 to 20% to buy a house anyway. You're probably not going to have, as long as you don't have any bad debt with that kind of a down payment and good income, you can go to a bank that underwrites their own mortgages and get a mortgage. But hey, I wouldn't fault you if you left the account active, as long as they weren't charging you a fee and the card can't be used. Um, but it, it's even more fun to call it, yeah, close my account. But sir, you've been a customer for a very long time. Yeah, it took me a long time to pay you off, close my account. But what if we had, you know, Puff the Magic Dragon lay golden eggs in your backyard? Yeah, I, I'm sorry, close my freaking account. But what if we came and sang you a lullaby and put your baby to sleep every night for you? Would you keep your, close my freaking account, right? It's a wonderful feeling. So in most instances, I would say as soon as it's paid off, then you completely close the account. Um, next question comes from Josh. Josh says, if our country continued with constitutional money, i.e. $1 equals 371.25 grains of silver, what would the monetary system look like today and how would things be better or worse? Let's start out with the fact that there is, I hate saying this, 
I hate what I'm about to say. I don't like saying this. I wish it wasn't true, but it is true. And I just had a long debate with somebody about this. There is nothing unconstitutional about our monetary system today. The United States Constitution does not state that the United States Congress must be who manufactures money. It does not state that money must be backed by gold or silver. There's one clause that mentions gold or silver, and it is not, it does not apply to the federal government. It applies to the state governments, and it says that states will either use U.S. currency or nothing other than gold or silver coin on their debts. Right? So what, it, what it's saying is the state of Florida can't start printing Florida money. And the fact that that's in the Constitution acknowledges the fact that the federal government can make paper money and can choose how it backs that paper money, for better or worse. Shortly after the Constitution was ratified, members of Congress saw a problem with this, and some of the founders backed this because they weren't able to get this done in the Constitution, and a law was passed called the Coinage Act of 1792. And in that, the Congress itself set the weights and measures, and gold and silver is the standard. And because Congress was the one that passed the law, Congress had the authority to overturn the law, and since Congress was given the authority to manufacture the currency, they were able to delegate that authority to a central bank. I don't like this, I don't want this, I think it's wrong, but it's not unconstitutional. And there's no case that can be made in a court today that it is unconstitutional. No matter how fair the court was, no matter how constitutionally pure the judges overseeing the, the case were, if they were to judge things by the letter of the law, they would not be able to rule the Federal Reserve is unconstitutional. I feel like my face should explode for saying that. But it's true, and I can't say it's not true. The reality is if we want to go back to commodity-based money, we have the power to do it anytime we want. All it takes is about, oh, I don't know, 50 to 60% of the people in the United States figuring that out and electing people that will abolish the Federal Reserve, get rid of the central bank, reclaim Congress's right to be the producer of the money, and back the money with a currency. That's all it takes. 60% of the population for a supermajority to hand over that ability to people that will do it. To put a president in place that will, will, will back it as well. Then we only need 51%. And until we do that, the same people that gave it away with electing officials that would give it away are the only people that can take it back. All right. Now the spirit of the question. What would our economy look like today if we, if we remained with a backing? Of gold and silver. First of all, one of the things that many of the, the, the people that, that fancy a, a fiat currency would say, uh, especially Keynesian economics uh, people, is that if a currency becomes too strong, it's bad. So, or if all the other currencies stay to the same strength, it doesn't matter, it's a moot point. So, what they're saying is basically if we still had a $20 gold piece being an ounce of gold, And that was 20 U.S. dollars was worth one ounce of gold. Well, then 20 U.S. dollars would have the purchasing power today of, what is it, 1,100, 1,600? I don't even know what gold is trading at today. I don't know, somewhere between 12 and 1,300 bucks, probably 1,270, something like that, 1,280, somewhere in there. Um, a $20 bill would have $1,280 worth of purchasing power today. And the problem with that would be the United States would be an importation economy only. 
Our, our currency would be so strong and so powerful, and when we pay people in wages like that, we would never be able to afford to export goods. Well, that's ignoring relative currency strength. It would, you know, a, a, a car would still be worth what a car is. A, 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 you know, a boat would still be worth what a boat is. A, a little doodad from Taiwan would still be worth whatever it is. We would just have more purchasing power. And the relative currency strength elsewhere w would factor into that a lot. But we would be a heavy import, low export economy. Well, is that much different? Is that much different right now? We have a tremendous abundance of natural resources in this nation, and we've never been a, a big exporter, ever. We, we've pretty much built our nation with our own resources and bought whatever else we wanted because we have so much interior wealth. But for money to be commodity-backed, it doesn't mean that it would have always stayed at that fixed weight and measure. There's no reason that we couldn't float the dollar, the American dollar, relative to other currencies and still have it be commodity-backed. We would just change the backing. So maybe $20 is no longer backed by an ounce of gold. Maybe it's backed by a quarter of an ounce. And that could be changed to deal with global inflation as necessary. We could still control the money supply, but there would be a finite level. Obviously, we can't go too well. One speck of gold is worth $20. There would have to be a reasonable backing of the commodity against the currency. And it would keep the U.S. currency very strong. It would not eliminate inflation unless we were isolationists. If we were total isolationists, it could completely eliminate inflation. Since we're going to be part of a global system, though, and even at the time of the founding of this country, there's already a global economy, guys. There's going to have to be some give and take, some float. There would just be a hell of a lot more control on how high the money supply would go. What the Keynesian would tell you, though, is with a limit, with a cap on inflation, when a problem comes along, we can't just inflate our way out of it. What they'd be saying is basically, you've ruined our lives because you've taken away our credit card. What we would have is a much more stable economy, a much more stable nation, and we would have a, the, the negative... Less investment, less people would put their money at risk. Because with less inflation, I could keep more of my money in a safe buried in my backyard and not have it robbed every year at you know 5% inflation, which is a real inflationary number. Not the fake inflation number that they give us, a core inflation index and this bullshit. Inflation runs right around 5%. You lose about 5% of the purchasing power of money a year. That means if I have a million dollars in my backyard right now, and I just bury it in the ground, it's exactly the same at the end of the year as if somebody came and took $50,000 or 5% of my money away. And then next year they come and take, what, $48,000. And now I'm down to around $900,000 in money. That's what happens with inflation, with planned inflation. I guess the other thing is... Our nation wouldn't necessarily be as big economically as it is today. And that would be also good. When I bring Chris on tomorrow, I'm not going to say too much more on this because I'm going to let him explain this when we talk about required growth. But in our economy today, because of the way our money supply is run, growth is not desirable, it's necessary. Anything other than growth is disaster. 
the actual contraction in the global economic system this year is about 2%. Look at how big a disaster it is. We can't handle a 2% contraction. I'm not talking about total dollars of wealth lost. I'm talking if we actually look at how terrible everything is. Total sales, gross output, GDP, things like that. It's about a 2% loss. 2% does this to us. With a commodity-backed currency, it's not a disaster because growth isn't required. In a commodity-backed currency, as growth curtails, there becomes a surplus of money. And then the money gets spent, which leads to a minor inflation, which leads to it's a self-correcting system. A, a commodity-backed currency is a lot like a permaculture system, and a Keynesian economic system is a lot like modern agriculture. You have to keep putting more in. You have to keep putting more out. You have to keep going and blowing with a Keynesian system. With a permaculture system, you reach a point of equilibrium. And once that equilibrium is met, if it's a big system, like a U.S. economy is a big system, you know, not Joe Blow's household economy, but in a big system, the system itself is self-regulating. People say, well, if we gave the Congress the power to make money, would it be worse than the Fed? Because these guys spend money like mad. If they had to back it with currency, the only way they could create more money in the system would be to bring in more gold or silver in reserve. So if they bring in more gold and silver to back it, if we go out as a nation and use our resources to create enough wealth to go out and purchase more gold or mine more gold and put it in reserve and we can back the currency, make all you want. Because there will always be a limit to how much gold we can store and how much gold we can find. The price of gold would be higher, by the way, and so would silver in the global marketplace. Everything would be different. Odds are that most nations in the world would also be on a commodity-backed system. Very few nations in the world would be running fiat systems if we weren't. So this whole thing about, well, you know, I hear radio people say all the time when somebody, a Ron Paul fan, calls in and talks about this, is we nobody else would be able to afford to do business with us. I'll tell you what, the euro, if it even existed, would be backed with gold. It probably wouldn't exist. We'd still have, you know, the French would have their francs and 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 and, and what have you. You know, the the Australian dollar would be backed in gold and silver. Every major nation has followed suit what we've done. They went fiat when we went fiat. Best I can do. We'll have Chris talk about that more for you tomorrow. Make sure you tune in uh, to that show. Let's go ahead and uh, take another one here. Uh, Andy says, is there any information out there for teaching kids to prep? They are our future. I'm new to your podcast and new to the member support brigade. After a few of your shows, I realized it's a great approach to life. But the first thing that came was uh, came to mind was my kids, age 9 and 12. I believe teaching kids to take care of themselves, cooking, cleaning up their own mess. I'm just not sure how to approach to take with prepping. Big one. Don't dumb it down. You know? Sometimes I say a cuss word or two, and that's probably not appropriate for a nine-year-old, and I don't really make the show for a nine-year-old, but some people let their nine-year-old listen and say, you better not say that, but this guy's making a point here. That's adult language, used in an adult situation. I find those parents to be enlightened. Um, by the time your kids are in, like, 12, 13, let them listen, man. My show is a lot cleaner than Friends, okay? My show's a lot cleaner than How I Met Your Mother. I, one TV show I've really loved is House. Right? And I'm not a prude or anything, guys. You know that. But, you know, part of house last night was damn near softcore porn. 
And this is on a major network, so they can listen if, if you're okay with it. Listen to the episode first before you let them listen. Let them listen. Tell them why they need to do this thing. Don't make it scary for kids, though. It's easy for a kid. See, the thing about kids is they're wonderful because they believe whatever you tell them. And that's also dangerous if you're not careful. Because they don't temper it with wisdom and a timeline. And if you tell them, hey, we could have a, a pandemic that would kill everybody tomorrow, that scares them. But what you say is, hey, look, you know, there's certain diseases out there that sometimes, you know how like you get a cold or whatever, sometimes those diseases can be worse. And... You know, if you're sick, we don't send you to school so you don't spread it around. Well, sometimes when you get sick um, and it's bad, it can spread a lot. And we might have to stay home because going out would be likely to get sick. And so if we have to stay home, then we would need to have some extra food and stuff around. Or, you know, sometimes things get really expensive really fast. We're not prepared for the prices go up. You know, but don't use tempering language, but don't dumb it down. You know, don't try to make it romper room, because it's not, and it can't be romper room. Uh, don't try to make it Barney the Dinosaur, for those that don't remember romper room, right? You know, Barney's probably gone, too. Don't make it the Wiggles, they're probably gone. I don't know what the little kids are watching now. Dora, don't try to make it Dora the Explorer, for the little kids, you know? And they're really little, just teach them basic things. Here's the beauty of prepping with kids. You don't have to explain the why, just to show them the how. They'll figure the why out on their own as they mature. And as they get older, you as a parent choose how much to expose them to. But you show them that just like we put pennies in the piggy bank, we put extra cans of food in the pantry. And t gardening's the best. I have a couple shows on gardening for kids. I'll try to find the links and get them up today. It might be later today because I got to get ready for this uh, interview with Mr. Martinson as soon as I'm done publishing this show. But if you look garden kids in the search box on survivalpodcast.com, uh, you'll find uh, at least two shows where I talk about how to use gardening to teach kids. But get them out there, get them digging. They love that. Get them out in the woods. Teach them how to make fire. Teach them skills. Focus on those things first. Lay that foundation underneath them, and by the time they're coming into that preteen, teenage years area, very receptive to the rest of it. And, you know, all you have to do is be honest with your kids. And then also understand this is about children. Children are not, and especially with babies, I see women to do this crap, and it drives me crazy. Children are not dolls, right? Dressing up the infant in like 60 different outfits. And everybody, oh, look how cute. They're little people. And even at a very young age, they have independent thought processes and independent minds. It hurts, but sometimes they won't share your beliefs, your values, or your joys. It really is painful to me that my son doesn't like to fish and hunt. I mean, it is, because I dreamed of having a son to take fishing and hunting one day, and I don't have that. But I have to be okay with that. That's not his thing. And he likes basketball. You know, and you, you meet them halfway where you can, but in the end, they make their own choices. But when it comes to a life value, like prepping, if you put a good foundation under them, they'll come back. It's for good, you know, teaching materials or anything like that. I don't really know any other than you yourself. You are the teacher. Get them out in the garden. Tell them the stories, the, the true stories, the ant and the grasshopper story. I mean, it's a great way to reach kids, especially the nine-year-old. The 12-year-old might be like, I heard that. I'm bored with it at this point. Give me my Wii, right? Um, but it's all about being direct and honest. And here's something I've learned about children. 
when we don't talk down to them, when we don't speak with a baby voice, when we don't change our tone, when we talk to our kids with the same directness that we would talk to a good friend that we see as our contemporary, it doesn't put them off. It empowers them, and it makes them feel like we value them, and it makes them feel like we see them as a, a true individual. And all of a sudden, they'll listen to us. When we talk down to them, when we dumb things down, and when we lecture, then they feel like, oh, they're just treating me like a kid, and their natural resistance is there. So that's the best I can do on that one. Um, this next one is one I had queued up for yesterday and, and uh, wanted to make sure I did it today. The person says, this article's making my head spin. Seems like paying off debt and mortgage is a bad idea if one can be cranking up their credit cards to buy precious metals. Your thoughts on how this fits into your philosophy would be greatly appreciated. And I get this Zero Hedge article. I'll put a link in today's show notes. And it's it's an article. When I read the article, I'm like, what the hell is this person talking about? Because there's nothing about that at all. It's, it's called Debunking the Great Myth of U.S. Consumer Deleveraging or why the U.S. economy will end with a whim- not with a whimper, but a bang. And what it's talking about is how <clears throat> we've been told by our elected officials that we need to go out and spend, and that the contraction in spending is the problem, and that banks have less and less debt on their books, and, and that's part of the problem, that we're not growing. Remember I said earlier, the only way this economy thrives is to continually grow, and the credit has contracted. Well, there's this interesting graph. I'm not going to, long already, so I'm not going to read the article to you, but basically what it's saying is you and I haven't stopped spending. The banks have written us off the books as a loss and, and cut our cut our credit off. That Americans have not said, no, I'm not going to use the MasterCard, I'm not going to use the Visa card, I'm not going to uh, get a second mortgage. Basically what happens is when Americans get this, the upshot of this article is when Americans get in trouble and they know they're going to go into bankruptcy sooner or later, they spend all of their credit. Hey, I'm 30000 in debt now. These idiots are willing to let me spend another $20,000. Let's go blow it. As long as my, I lost my job, but they don't know that yet. Look, I, let's go ahead and get another home home loan and, and get an equity, pull some more equity out of the house if we can, and we get every bit of the money out we can, and then we blow it and we go out with a bang, and then we go, sorry, can't pay. And that's what most Americans have done. And if you look at the decline in debt, it's like a stair step on this graph. Again, I'll put a link to it so you can look at it. And it matches almost perfectly with the charge-offs. Basically, what it says is that the number thrown around is about $600 billion or something like that um, that you know the, the credit has contracted by. And, yeah, $600 billion. But $580 billion has been written off as bad debt means that we've only contracted our spending voluntarily by $20 billion. The people that were written off would still be blowing money if they could. And then down in the comments section, I get what the, uh, what the, uh, the person's asking about. Because Rocky Raccoon in the comments section says, <clears throat> load up and check out. Take the towels and a little shampoo as well. So he's talking about a hotel there, you know, people that take everything out of the hotel. I'm maintaining my 800-plus credit rating so that when the ramparts start to fail, I can borrow to the hilt. They'll be seeking me out. And check out with a few precious metal purchases to supplement my income in my old age. I've created my own little Ponzi scheme to remove the brick in the wall from the bigger Ponzi. 
So what he's saying is, I'm going to keep my mortgage and I'm going to keep my credit cards. I'm not going to be in debt so much, but I'm going to make payments on it. I'm going to keep my credit score as high as possible. And I'm going to keep my credit limit as high as possible. And as soon as I see the economy start to fall completely apart, but before those credit cards stop working, I'm going to go out and buy all the gold and silver I can on credit, and then screw them, I can't pay their debt. I'll go bankrupt like everybody else, and I'll hide away my precious metals. Number one, if that can be proven that you did that intentionally, it's a crime, and they can throw you in jail for it. They can certainly come take back the precious metals, right? Um, I guess you could get a cash advance and go buy it kind of black market and put it away, maybe. But this is stupid. This is a stupid mentality. I'm going to keep my credit high so I can use credit to buy metal while the economy is completely collapsing? No. No. You still have to pay the money back. What do you think you're going to do? Sit on it for a while? Sell it? Make the spread and pay it back? They have that in a stock market. It's called a margin loan. There's credit that exists for speculation. That's all this is. Now, I don't have a problem with your credit score being high. I have a problem with you having a lot of debt, which is how your credit score gets high. Um, I, I don't know. This is just stupid. The, the, the point of the article is more important. You read the whole article for yourself today. The point of the article is Americans haven't learned a damn thing. Any American that still has the capability to piss away money is pretty much pissing it away. A $600 million contraction in credit spending, $600 billion contraction in credit spending, almost the amount of the stimulus, by the way. Stimulus was a little bit more. Isn't that, hmm, interesting, isn't it? Right? But a $600 billion contraction is actually only a $20 billion contraction in spending. It's $580 billion lost. Which means your neighbor... And his neighbor and everybody but you is still pissing away their money and our economy is still in deep crap. And eventually, more people are going to run that stair step down. Look at the graph when you read the article today. It's, uh, it's very concerning if you just really look at it. Um, last one. Jack, just wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you for the reference to homes in Denton County. Another question uh, DH and I have been asking ourselves is, who on earth around here could build us a green home? Uh, on An online search sent me to a website for Whitehawk Construction Company. The community you were referring to was Whitehawk. I talked to the owner. He invited us to visit his own L-sheltered and off-grid house in a few weeks. So thanks for taking the time to answer my question on air and lead us in the right direction. So this was a lady that called in that had her heart set on an earthship. That's what she wanted was an earth chip. And I had talked about how long they take to build and, and building codes and, and things like that. And she said, well, I still really want one, but what are some other alternatives? And I said, well, an earth-sheltered home. And I mentioned a community in Denton, Texas. So if you live in North Texas and you'd like to say, I couldn't remember the name of it. I had been there 15 years ago. The name of the, com of the community is Whitehawk. And Whitehawk Construction, which has a terrible website, by the way. Awful, awful, like front page 1998 website. Um... You can look them up and get in touch with the owner, Whitehawk Construction. I'll put a link today. And uh, you can get in touch with them. 
And apparently you can go out there and still look at this community and get some ideas. So I don't think you'd want to travel from, you know, New England to see this area. But if you're somewhere near North Texas, it might be worth checking out to learn more about uh, how people live this way and how people create fully off-grid, self-independent systems without going quite the Earthship route. Because, like I said, I didn't see a lot of tires. And uh, I did see quite a bit of uh, can beer can and beer bottle and, and, and soda bottle walls. Uh, built into some of this stuff, but most of it was just this uh, concrete-based uh, earth-sheltered home, and the one I was in, even though it was quite hot out, was very, very comfortable inside. So uh, again, it's called White Hawk. And with that, I think I'll wrap up today. I just wanted to tie it together with that and let you guys know that if you are in the North Texas area, you can check that out. And look for communities like that around. And again, these homes are not earth ships. They're called earth-sheltered homes. And I think that might be an easier way to build highly self-sufficient housing going forward uh, than the earth chip until somebody makes a way to pack a tire uh, with a machine because that is what really takes so long with the earth chips. Remember, if you'd like to have your question answered on a show like this, please email me with the words question for Jack in the subject line. Send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. If you'd like to be on one of our Friday call-in shows, which actually your odds of getting on are much better if you do that, uh, dial 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. Uh, I get a lot of calls. I get a lot more emails. That means that you have a better chance of ending up on the air with a good, concise question under two minutes uh, at the caller line. With that, this is me, Jack Spirko, with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares.